Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Long from Southwest Research Institute, also known as SWERI. Uh, we will be discussing directed energy and high-power microwaves and advances in those fields. Uh, but before I get to him, I want to again draw your attention to our new subscription service, that we will be launching here in the coming weeks. Uh, as a reminder, our regular bi-weekly From the Crow's Nest episodes will remain free to the public on all major podcast platforms. But if you really enjoy the show, which I hope you do, and you want to keep up with current events, we are launching this new subscription service, which will consist of two additional episodes each month. And these episodes are only available to subscribers. These episodes will be tailored more for informal discussion as well as following headlines and recent developments in the defense and EMSO communities around the world. As you may have noticed, we have already started releasing some of these bonus subscription episodes that we are making available to the public so you can get a taste of the different style of episode that the subscription service offers. These will be going away behind a paywall soon, and you will only be able to access them and new subscriber episodes by either becoming an AOC member or subscribing at a low monthly cost of $2.99 per month. Uh, now, as a subscriber, not only do you get access to these two additional episodes per month, but you are also able to participate in the live recordings of these episodes from the audience. As an audience member, you can listen in, comment, and ask questions of me and my guests. Uh, I'll have a rotating slate of special guests on, including John Knowles from AOC's Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, Matt Thompson, our senior analyst, as well as friends of the show, Colonel Jeff Fisher, and others. We'll have regular guests on that are really kind of tuned to what's going on, and we'll have a very informal conversation. We look for audience engagement and your comments and questions throughout the episode. You can learn more about the subscription and when it's going to kick in here in the coming weeks uh, by going to crows.org. But again, we encourage you to take a listen to some of these episodes that are coming out in the meantime, and we look forward to having you on as a subscriber real soon. Now, on to my guests. I am pleased to have with me for this episode, Dr. Andrew Long. Uh, Dr. Long has spent 16 years designing antennas and RF components for various applications, ranging from moonshot research to commercial products. Uh, his current tasks and interests at Southwest Research Institute revolve around design, fabrication, and measurement of exceptionally novel apertures. He is here to discuss direct energy and, more specifically, high-power microwaves as they serve as a bridge between traditional electronic attack and directed energy lasers. So, Dr. Long, thanks for joining me here on From the Crow's Test. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, man, my pleasure. I think we, we first met uh, I th about a couple years ago now, probably. Yeah, AOC, a, or not, it was DEPS. It was, it was DEPS. It was, DEPS. Uh, it was Directed Energy Professional Society. 
Uh, I was looking for a panelist to talk about directed energy and went to Swery and they're like, hey, you have to have Dr. Long on. And so really appreciate <laughs> ha have, ha having you serve on my panel a couple of years ago. I can't believe it's been 2022 since that happened. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a long time to have you on here, but thanks for being on. So to begin, you know, I wanted to have you on to talk about high power microwave. We've had conversations uh, on the show here about directed energy generally, some of where that technology area is going, but high power microwave is kind of a unique approach or a unique aspect of directed energy weapons. They tend to, in the conversation of HPM, kind of create a little bit of a bridge between what we think about as electromagnetic warfare and then directed energy. I wanted to have you on the show to tell us a little bit about, like, let's let's break it down to almost at a 101 level to get started. What When we talk about how high power microwave, what are we talking about and how does it relate to traditional directed energy and that bridge between yeah. EW? Yeah, you, like you said, high power microwave is, is kind of the bridge between like EW and, and what people traditionally think of as directed energy. So high power microwave 101, you know, what is it? It can be a lot of things, honestly. It's, it's a pretty broad uh, definition. You know, it's like, what are you going after? What subsystem in that thing are you trying to target? Is it the receiver channel itself? Is it the, either the microcontroller in the power supply? what we call like a backdoor effect. And what are you using to deliver that? You know, there's all kinds of flavors that this takes. And is the effect, you know, are you trying to cause like a momentary disruption in a comm link, you know, forcing an automatic reestablishment, which, hey, that sounds a lot like jamming, doesn't it? Uh, well, you know, uh, hence why we're all kind of under the MSO umbrella now, right? So all the way uh, ranking up to five-star, you know, irreparable damage to the LNA, maybe, I mean, to the receiver channel. Maybe you're, you know, putting so much power through that you're ablating the LNA. And when that happens, there's no recovery. So, you know, we have a whole range of effects, a whole range of things we're targeting, a whole range of methods we're using to do this. And uh, yeah, and we're just using you know, high power microwave to do it. And if, if sometimes it might sound like, man, that just sounds like a phased array or, or an AESA, you know, active electronically scanned array on steroids. And you're not, you wouldn't be wrong if, if it sounded you know, like some of the traditional stuff we use in EW. But how does it differ? How does it differ from those when in that conversation? So there's there's two sides of the coin uh, when it comes to high power microwave. I mean, there's lots of coins you could put in the air, but there's like two sides of the coins that I like to think about. And I'll give you some some pretty high TRL examples on both sides of that coin. Uh, the, the stuff that's kind of the the front runner, you know, to being procurement ready that I'm aware of anyway. So on one side of the coin, what I just kind of described, like kind of like an AESA on steroids. We've got Leonidas made by Epris. I can't remember if Epris was acquired or got some recent investments from Raytheon and some of the other big defensive contractors. But Leonidas, you can just Google it. It's basically a little trailer with a panel on it. And that panel is basically a, a phased array. And behind every channel in that array is, is some sort of probably a software-defined radio channel, right? That's kind of what all EW uses these days. It's a software-defined radio because people like that it's adaptable on the fly. Software-defined radio channel plus amp plus antenna, you know, times however many you can fit on that panel. And again, that sounds that sounds like a phased array. You, you aren't wrong. And I read, you know, some of the patents that the United or the Epris has, has filed for this uh, over the years. And yeah, it's there's some notional stuff they say like hey, it could be L-band, could be you know 60 volt uh, GAN gallium arsenide solid state amps behind every channel. Exactly what's in there, I couldn't tell you, but I have a couple guesses. But that side of the coin represents basically traditional EW, software-defined radio channel, 
solid state AMP array. The advantage there, as I said, is people love that it's software defined, means I can, you know, here's drone A and here's drone B. Drone A is weak against this, drone B is weak against that. I press a button, uh, I'm tuned into what that thing is most sensitive to. Now, the, the downside to a system like that is a hell of a lot of power consumption. So listeners may not know much about amplifiers. Uh, let me tell you, RF amplifiers are just notoriously inefficient. They're like the incandescent bulbs of the RF world. You know, for every one watt of like actual RF power these things are putting out, you probably have to dump in like five or six watts of prime power. And that just scales up. So I don't know exactly uh, how much power uh, efforts is consumed, but I'm going to tell you it's a lot. I don't know if the trailer comes with some generator, but that's just one of the downsides. And, and some people say I'm, I'm actually probably being generous because I was just looking at some off-the-shelf specs for high power, you know, from power modules today. And yeah, that 25% has been the front, <laughs> the leader today as far as efficiency is concerned. The other downside is peak power, right? When we're doing a high power microwave, it's, hey, are we trying to just play a really loud note for a long time to get, you know, to over time, just kind of cook that LNA, for example, or are we trying to do a spark, a real pop in power? There's advantages both ways. So trying to get that pop is, is not really feasible on a solid state amp in this one side of the coin that we're talking about. You can do a lot of average power, but you can't do a lot of peak power because you can't really get voltage greater than what your amplifier can provide. Even when you add it up, um, you know, you're not gonna get the hundreds of megawatts or gigawatt, you know, peak power that some of these, the other side of the coin can give you. Hello everyone. I wanna take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas. But in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens that had invaded 
And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Yeah, so I want to go back to to the efficiency and power supply. Well, actually, we'll probably address that a little bit later because I think that that's a, a much longer. There's a lot more going on in that one. But in terms of with, with HPM, you, you you give a range of what you can do with it. Is is one of the advantages the range of flexibility that you have in terms of the effect that you are pursuing versus a traditional laser weapon system, or is it? more in terms of the adaptability to the technology that you currently are using. I guess I, I glossed over that in the, maybe I should have included that in the 101 discussion. So yeah, direct energy, it's, it's usually one of two buckets. It's the lasers where it's the high power microwave. And you know, so the, I don't know if it's 50-50 in terms of the crowd we see at depths every year. Uh, certainly the lasers, beam lasers, people know what lasers are. People grew up watching Star Wars and things like that. We have a general notion of what a laser is and what it can do. Lasers are cool, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but you know, you'll know you hear anybody giving you a one-on-one discussion tell you about, hey, lasers are cool, but you know what? There's a dwell time, right? I need to, I need to keep the flashlight on this target for five seconds before I see smoke. You know, there's some sort of range as well. A high-power microwave, on the other hand, you know, when, it do, when it works, it works quick. Ablate that LNA, you're gonna ablate it pretty dang fast. We're talking, you know, uh, I, I, I shoot this and you would have swear I just hit a rocket, this UAV, uh, it just goes down. And then, of course, lasers are very focused. Our microwave is as focused as the antenna allows it to be. You could do a very tight beam for a very long-range engagement. You can do a very broad beam for a, kind of a, a sweep of targets. You know, if, if someone is trying to hit you with a barrage or drones, I can't think of anything better for dealing with that than you know, just <laughs> sweep the dish over this uh, horizon and, and they all drop like flies. Of course, you have your source and signal appropriately matched. So going back with the other side of the coin then. Okay, yeah, the fun side. I call this the fun side of the coin, honestly, because we're getting away from like traditional electronics and EW into stuff that you would say is more like, you know, analog, more like lab, more like mad scientist kind of stuff where these are real physical devices rather than just, a, you know, a scaling up of a, what we all typically do in electronic warfare anyway. So we have all kinds of crazy sources, things that are really good at creating these pops of energy in one form or another. That could be, I, I'll give you a bunch of, bunch of fun jargony uh, terms. We got uh, March generators, uh, vercators, uh, backward wave oscillators, uh, nonlinear transmission lines. All these things are basically do some sort of pulse compression or, or create pulses or turn pulses into notes or, or, or certain frequencies. Like that's what a vercator does. You know, if you have a guitar, I pluck that string. That's a very kind of a snap of energy but what comes out? 
ultimately. It's a note that's played, has a certain kind of duration to it and a certain frequency. So a Bergdor takes the, the, the pop of a March generator and, and kind of turns it into a certain note with one hell of a, a rise time, by the way. And that rise time is, is why this one side of the coin can do things the other can't. That rise time, that's a hell of a lot of peak power. You know, we're talking hundreds of megawatts, gigawatts even. And that can bypass some of the traditional uh, front door uh, locks. I'll put it that way. So, you know, someone that once asked me, hey, can HPM take down a, a hypersonic? And what, you know, what do you think the engineering answer to that is, Ken? What do, what do engineers always say when someone asks that kind of question? Absolutely. Yeah, or either absolutely, or, or, or you know, the way it depends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> may, 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 right. Okay, let me let me edit that out. It depends. <laughs> it depends. It depends. So if I am uh, making a, any kind of avionics package, uh, for, like as expensive as a hypersonic, I'd, I'd be a fool not to have what's called an RF limiter in that chain. And it does exactly what the name implies. It's a, kind of a nonlinear device that once the power gets up a certain point, it just acts as a ceiling to the input. It's there to protect the LNA and the receiver chain. But with the evolution of threat technology out there and, and all the the advanced systems that we're fielding, adversaries are fielding, does HPM give you uh, a little bit more freedom to think outside the box in terms of how you can use that capability to affect another adversarial system? Right. Do you really have uh, anything in your toolbox? I mean, is this really a a tool you can use? Yeah, they can quickly adapt and, and use effectively in the field. So yeah, it, it depends. Like I said, there's a further adaptable, you know, right? Software defined. How do you get more adaptable than that? Now I have seen, you know, uh, HPM sources that are like tunable. Like there's a little screw or something you adjust uh, in this Vercator that can kind of adjust the frequency coming out of it. For example, uh, that's a thing. Now, uh, you know, but you know, the, the, the downside of the side of the coin is, is usually things aren't quite as tunable or as adaptable as their software defined counterparts on the other side. But like I said, they can do things the other can't. So even these RF limiters that I was just talking about, you know, they, they limit the amount of RF power. They, they're there to protect the LNA. But here's the thing. They can only close the front door so fast. You know, there is a, a response time associated, you know, spec on that device. And so if you can go from zero to 600 volts in a few nanoseconds, you basically get your foot in the door before they can close it. And so, you know, theoretically, you can kind of bypass some of these traditional front end protections. Again, I haven't. You know, the, the actual people out there playing in the field with these things and, and, and testing their efficacy, you know, that, that data is, is obviously classified. I know some folks at Dahlgren, the NRL, maybe an FRL, these are the, the centers of excellence in this field. You know, they will go out and they have this whole test matrix where, you know, here's drone A or whatever you want to call it. And here's a couple sources of waveforms uh, that, that score well at this range, you know. So that way they had this whole catalog of, what works against what? And then they'll say, well, yeah, the, the, when this one thing here seems to have the most boxes checked, maybe that's the thing we should, you know, invest in and deploy and develop. But yeah, so yeah, the, your HVM does give you, it's, it's an extra tool in the toolkit. It just happens to be a really cool one. So going back to the the, the power supply topic you, you mentioned, uh, I, again, I can tell you, you've got, you've got something uh, ready to go here. Talking about the amplifier, the aspect of amplifying power, solid state, you have vacuum electronics. There's tends to be quite uh, a space in between those those approaches, uh, <laughs> to say to say the least. 
Yeah, yeah, they're not, they're not, there's no gray area. You're either solid you, you state or you're... You have advocates yeah. for both and they both will and, be... Hey, some systems use both. Some systems use both. Exactly. So they use both. Uh, I think there's positives and negatives for both. So in terms of HPMs, specifically where it's going, what are some of the trade-offs that you've talked about when you get into the efficiency necessary in, in, in the power supply? What are some of the questions that have been raised or either solid state works best or vacuum, or where is that conversation going from your perspective? So the thing with solid states, right, these, and by the way, when you get up to the, uh, these power levels, these things are, well, I, I don't know, I can't say the other side of the coin is cheap either, but I do know uh, <laughs> these, these high power pulse systems, I don't want to knock uh, any particular vendor, I, I'm sure it's expensive for a reason, but they get, you know, way up there. And so, you know, you're lucky if you can have like, you know, one real channel, we're pumping out, you know, the megawatt peak power give or take. Neither the TWTs nor the solid states are, are known for being efficient. Uh, I think I can't even say wh whether one's notoriously worse than the other. Uh, I've heard TWTs are generally maybe a little bit worse, but it depends. And of course, TWTs are bigger, they're tubes, they're long, but you know, uh, for some, for, they can get up to more power than you can with a solid state. That's why people think, ah, the tube's been around since this, you know, I don't know, who knows, the 20s. They're outdated. No, no, no. They're not, they're not outdated because you still need that if you want to really get up there in power. Like every microwave power module uh, that goes up, you know, above the 50, the 100 watts, even at the high frequencies, it'll be a tiny tube in there. <laughs> Neither side is known for being efficient. In fact, I was just thinking back to uh, a podcast you did uh, February last year when you were talking to the uh, Next Gen Jammer uh, PM and Captain David something. Captain Reader, the program manager. And one of the things I distinctly remember him saying, because he stepped in that program, wondering what the hell was taking this thing so long to get off the ground. Uh, it's been in development so long. And you know what he said was the reason why it took so long? Power and cooling. And so people say, well, I want to get HPM in a pod. Uh, well, well, hold on now. <laughs> you know, uh, power and cooling, no joke. So how do each of those solid state and, and, and vacuum kind of address the power, the, the heat and cooling aspect of it? I was under the impression that like vacuum can offer a little bit better cooling, but... Vacuum tubes get hot. Okay. That's just the way the, they, they work. Now, I can't say one has a special way of getting colder than the other. Yeah, it, they both kind of rely on the same methods of heat conduction. You, you go buy a power module, it'll say on there whether it's air cooled or liquid cooled. And uh, you know, I've never really looked at the options on tubes before because it is such a niche but either way it's challenging and it's so challenging right that some of these pods these old school ew pods with the amps in them they have so much power they need so much cooling that they you know you have like heat exchanges all along the side of the pod and it's it's to the point where you do not turn this on unless you're flying because you will you know cook it will cook itself or unless this thing happens to be sitting in a 300 mile an hour wind tunnel do not <laughs> do not crank it up please do you think that this is a, an area that needs to be addressed for HPM to really take off in terms of what it could possibly do? It depends. So it's all like how much you're scaling up that power. So in terms of delivery, one kind of half side of the coin, I think it can go either way. Like any antenna, any kind of uh, energy transmission in, in the electromagnetic spectrum, you got like three things you need. Ideally, you need a lot of input power. You need a lot of antenna gain. Uh, what was the other thing you need? Oh, yeah. And, and or proximity to target. <laughs> so uh, often you have to, you know, you can't have all three. 
And so you might say, well, man, I do not want to get close to this target. Okay. You need a lot of range. So you need a lot of, if you can't get close, then you really need a lot of antenna gain and a lot of output power. You might say, uh, I can't fit that huge antenna. Okay. You need power and you need to get close. And some systems do that. Uh, it's like a, a, a tiny little HPM module on a drone. So examples include Lockheed's Morpheus. And I, I don't know if that's a March generator or just another solid state amp in there, but you know, it, you know, it flies close and bleeps out another drone. Ephraim, they have a variant called like the uh, Leonidas pod or something like that. And there's a little image of it bolted to the bottom of the drone. So you can, like I said, with a reduction in range, you can overcome a lot of things. So who are some of the the key players from the government side that are really kind of on the forefront of HPM weapons? You know, obviously from the service perspective in DOD, what are they working on? We'll probably hear better from them, but here's just what I know, just from going to depths every year and talking to these folks and emailing them all the time. So I don't know if I'm supposed to name any specific names or just offices, but, you know, uh, I'd say O&R is definitely, you know, the as far as research is concerned anyway, the big funding body now. Interestingly, HPM is such a niche, you know, I, I wouldn't even say it's any single branch doing any specific thing because, you know, it's such a small crowd. The AFRL folks, you know, hang out with the Dahlgren folks. Everybody knows, uh, you know, what's going on. If it's an O&R project, there's probably an AFRL person involved somehow. And so, you know, it's, it's a joint effort because, you know, it's a joint need. But I will say, I think the, as far as like, stuff coming along, right? The army like says signed a big contract with uh, EFRIS. And so, because that thing is getting close to, you know, it's evaluation rounds, who knows if or how many they'll procure. Uh, but on the research side, uh, it's either AFRL and, or, or Dahlgren, you know, which we get support from NRL, the Naval Research Lab, but that O&R and the folks there, I think kind of, kind of have the top level view of everything. I think officially the, the center of excellence is AFRL Kirkland. Anybody who's ever gone to a DEPS conference, you know, the, one of the major topics of conversation is always how do you cross that valley of death? You know, a lot of directed energy programs, you know, you, you go year to year and it's you know, a lot of lab-based conversations. It's, it's in the lab, it's testing. And fielding it has really picked up pace. But when we did our panel discussion a couple of years ago, one of the hot topics that was came up frequently in our panel and, and other sessions was how to address some of these integration of EW and direct energy capabilities earlier in development so that you're not trying to tack it on later and, and kind of slowing that progress down. So talk a little bit about how are we doing from a research to procurement standpoint of, of getting some of the stuff into the field and getting it also into development, integrated into development earlier in the process. Right. Now, I mean, yet you, I mean, that's the stuff all research adheres, you know, it's kind of the, the bane of our existence or, what, you know, what kind of depresses us sometimes is that, that horrible valley of death. The university is on one side and, you know, the, the Northrop's, the Raytheon's, uh, the Lockheed's on the other side. And in the middle is uh, trying to get, you know, up the TRL chain. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a priority. Depth's conference this year, O&R was talking kind of about that and what they're the main like needs are here's the the, the big uh, kink we have in the armor the big you know thing we're trying to resolve right now is is trying to make things that work from the lab get, get them get them ready for the deployment please you know nobody uh, likes being lab only everybody wants the, the to show progress so some of the things we're doing to from a system level is uh, like for example targeting at, at NISTIC, these same uh, technical points kind of like the same TPOX, you know they had a statement of need for you know, direction finding, 
know, identifying, you know, a target to, to aim this really focused HPM at. So, um, you know, they're, they're going out to industry, you know, how can we integrate traditional uh, DF systems, but refine them to even tighter uh, windows of, you know, line of airing, you know, so yeah, the, the, the systems around these things are being sought. I'll just say that. Every year, uh, NISTIC, which is one of the uh, contract vehicles uh, that uh, these labs like to use, almost invariably there's there's something in there for, hey, can, who has a low swap, lower swap anyway, <laughs> compact HPM source? You know, trying to get these things uh, functioning was one thing. Uh, functional on a surface vehicle is a different thing. You know, it needs to be integrated, needs to be uh, mounted, uh, needs to get the real estate within a certain footprint needs to have all these other boxes checked because I can understand why it's taking so long, right? If, if you're the, the admiral and there's this uh, ship-mounted HPM weapon, yeah, you got to be concerned about electronic fratricide. How do I know that when you squeeze the trigger, you're not knocking out, you know, five $50 million radars over here? And so stuff like that just makes it take longer because the, yeah, these aren't, even though these are like technically non-lethal weapons, they still have the potential for uh, functional harm. And then certainly in today's kind of uh, security environment, you know, the cost of execution is at the top of the list. By using a capability in, in a way that causes fratricide or even your other systems to not work properly can increase the cost of an operation to an extent that it's causes. you're not necessarily, it's, it's not lethal in any way, but it's, it is increasing a cost that is you know, continually going up and in, in, into to ranges that make it difficult to even take action in the first place. So when you're talking like a China scenario, you want to reduce your cost and increase the cost of the adversary. But if you don't have proper T and E, uh, you're going into the unknown. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So like a whole bunch of stuff needs to go to that study to, to sort of narrow down that fratricide risk, right? So like, let's make sure this antenna is heck of a lot of focused in this one direction, and this energy doesn't spill over. You know, except with very heavy attenuation in these other directions. But the measures of effectiveness, I mean, how do you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm absolutely confident in the level of risk for the system that we can field it, given just the dynamic nature of any conflict these days? I mean, is there an effective process to follow where we can actually reach a point where we're confident? Yeah, this is not going to interfere. This is not going to cause too many unforeseen challenges. Do our military leaders understand what is going on because of the challenge of really knowing how you can see the effect of a high power microwave? So that, that, quite, that question really goes uh, a couple levels above my pay grade. But I, I will say that there are some analogies here, right? When you're fielding a radar, there's a whole bunch of cosite interference studies that take place on any kind of antenna, any kind of emitter of any kind on any platform. Uh, it, it, it's some people call it bureaucratic, but you know, it, it is what it is for, for the sake of risk reduction. So there's one level that, that there's a clear corollary. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of procedures for procuring the next, you know, artillery cannon on, on, on a boat, right? How do I verify this thing won't blow up? <laughs> you know, or the storage regulations are met, you know, there's, it's, it's probably a little mix of getting a new radar approved versus getting a new, uh, you know, somewhat lethal a weapon approved on, on a platform. This is what I imagine it to be anyway. I might be a pure, I'm probably a pure dilettante there, but that's just what I imagine it to be. And actually, I think it actually, it's still, it's still a maturing thing, right? The, the, the rule book has not been written 
I will say that they're they're still evolving the the standards. Of what should the playbook be for getting this on the on the boat? So uh, in the time we have remaining, just you know, kind of bringing it into back to kind of what your day to day job in terms of what are you currently pursuing that is either a keeping you up at night or getting you up in the morning because it's just exciting about the possibilities. Well, there's a couple of things at HVM now. I, you know, I haven't had a chance to pursue it. This way was any kind of research. So you have other kind of uh, things you have to do first. Sometimes some things just get pushed on the stack. I got a couple of things in my back pocket uh, related to HPM. So one of the things uh, at, the, at the conference a few years ago, I was kind of showcasing this, this notion of an additively manufactured um, array that, you know, basically going from like the, the old school CRT tube television to like a flat screen equivalent as far as the, the aperture panel was concerned. Now, that was a simulation going from simulation to prototype. There's a couple of risks there. And one of the risks, and no one's been able to exactly quantify it yet, but one of the risks that we just all kind of have, have a feeling about is additive manufacturing is notorious for surface roughness. If you've ever seen an additive manufactured metal part, or more importantly, if you've ever felt an additively manufactured uh, trinket of any kind, it's usually very rough. And there's some general knowledge that rough electrodes arc at a lower voltage than smooth electrodes. And so power handling of these HPM systems is, is going to be affected by how polished you can make uh, these surfaces. And so added manufacturing seems like to be kind of out because of that, or at least, you know, entered cautiously. Well, you know, this is where you meeting folks from other disciplines yields fruit at a this random conference in DC called Tech Connect. I didn't think I was going to meet anybody relevant because I, I read the the, the panel titles and nothing struck out of me, but later on I started you know, looking at some of the session titles and I met these folks from uh, like REM surface engineering and they have this magic for, uh, with doing chem etch and, and whatever kind of, uh, grit they need, they can make beautifully smooth surfaces. And what's more important, they've been focusing their, their IR and D on how to apply their process to additively manufactured parts. And not only that, even doing it for like stuff with like internal channels, you know, how do we do a chem flush or some sort of, you know, I call it just give it the bath, you know, to make this surface roughness at a level that can work at HPM. So that's, so we'll be doing, uh, when I get the white paper out there, we'll be doing some, uh, you know, some experiments. Okay. Here's a, here's an HPM thing that works. I can turn it up to 10. Here's an added manufacturer part inserted. Okay. I can only turn, turn the dial up to two and then it arcs. <laughs> Here's a, the same part, but given the, the quote unquote bath treatment, all right, oh, you're able to get it up to nine. And so finding, you know, the, the practical, do some practical experiments, you know, here, here's what works to, on this one particular HPM system, at least, uh, to, to unlock some new, uh, manufacturing you know, modalities to making cooler and crazier things. Let's see. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, the HPM, well, you know, like I said, we submitted a, a bid for doing some sort of direction finding as well. Anything else before I ramble on too much? No, yeah, that, that's great. It's, 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 and I think that's the, the the benefit of you know conferences and 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 all the the meetings that we have throughout the years is no matter what the problem is, there's someone with the solution. They don't know it. They don't know it. They they never heard of HPM until I approached them. Some other folks are doing yeah additive manufactured ceramics. They never heard of uh, grin lenses and all these all the crazy things their technology can work for. What's your refractive index? What's a refractive index? And you have to cross the military and commercial sectors a lot more these days because of some of the advancements out there. So it's, it's, it's really cool to see how some of these, the questions that you have, you're, you're putting out there and you're, you're seeing 
opportunities there to kind of solve some of the, the, the problems that you've been working through. Well, thank you, Dr. Long. I, that, that's all the time that we have for today. I wanted to, uh, I, I do appreciate you coming on the show. Really good information on HPM and kind of where it's going. So with that, I, I'd like to thank you for joining me. With absolute pleasure. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Long for joining me today. Again, please check out our new subscriber episodes and consider subscribing to this podcast once we get the service up and going. You can learn more at crows.org. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.